Well, my name is Greg Seeger. I'm uh, the, I think I'm supposed to be wearing another mic here. Hang on. My wife and I are both registered nurses. Uh, some years back, we founded an organization called the Christian Health Service Corps. And uh, we have a passion for uh, seeing uh, the mission community begin to use inter- recognized international standards uh, and guidelines that are, uh, that are out there that oftentimes we, uh, we, tend to, uh, we tend to neglect. And as a, we're actually the, the only long-term or the only mission agency that was established specifically for sending long-term missionaries to the mission field. And part of that was that we felt that there needed to be, uh, we need to have a training component, which is one of the things that we've been working very hard to create. Uh, Dr. Laura Smelter is here with me. She's uh, our director of training. And this is one uh, initiative that we thought was pretty important as we began to really develop a training program within our ministry. And uh, the, the context of this is Sphere Handbook and the Humanitarian Charter and the Code of Conduct. And people see humanitarian and say, well, wait a minute, we're, we're a Christian organization. Is that something that we need to be engaging with? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And we look at humanitarian in the context of responding to human suffering. And anyone who responds to human suffering has some engagement with the humanitarian community, whether that be of, from a holistic gospel perspective of, or whether that be strictly from the secular perspective, you are going to be interacting with these people in the global health community. And you need to understand what the standards of, for health care, what the standards for disaster and refugee response look like from the larger world community. Uh, so we wanted to kind of start at this point and understand that the, some of the standards that we're going to talk about today are very much of applicable to not only disaster and refugee response, which is the context that we're looking at them in, but also short and long-term missions. And I think as we go along, you'll begin to see that. But the first thing I want to do is introduce you to uh, a, this is going to be a short video about the Sphere Project, which is, I think, a really important initiative. There's not too many organizations engaged with Sphere in the, in the U.S., and I think the Christian community needs to understand what these standards are and how do we engage with them and how do we utilize them overseas. There's only two Sphere trainings that I see uh, on the books right now for the U.S. One is done at Harvard, and they do an amazing job, and it's spread out over a few weeks. And we're doing one in Texas now. Uh, I think we're doing two this year. Is that correct? But I, I think it's uh, – I'm going to let you kind of just look through the video, uh, you know, observe, see what you think, and, and I'm gonna get, we're going to get your input by the time we're done here. And I'm going to get you looking at the Sphere Handbook. Do you have a copy of the Sphere Handbook? This is, uh, this is the Sphere Handbook, and we're going to talk – this is what this video is referring to. And it's, uh, it's, it's got some really great information, and, and we're going we're gonna to be working with this before the end of today. We're going to have at least part of this in your hands, and we're going we're gonna to be looking through some of the key indicators. So let's see if this video will play for us now, and we're going to pray over it and say, Lord, bless the video, please.
Okay. We're going to we're going to do the To become a reality, lofty ideals need to be translated into concrete actions. One of the great ideals of our time is the humanitarian imperative. I'm sorry guys. This is uh this has been going on for a little while now, so we're having I'm going to show it to you in this context. And hopefully it'll show you a little better here. Uh, yeah, if somebody wants to grab the lights on this and they're over there in the corner. To become a reality, lofty ideals need to be translated into concrete actions. One of the great ideals of our time is the humanitarian imperative. The notion that there exists a right to receive and to give humanitarian assistance wherever it's needed in order to prevent and alleviate human suffering, protect life, and ensure respect for all human beings without discrimination. When disaster strikes, the humanitarian imperative boils down to ensuring that people have access to water and food, shelter and health care, protection and safety, and that they're listened to. Simple, yet essential. But anyone who has ever been involved in humanitarian response knows that making all this happen is anything but simple. Humanitarian work, like any other important task, needs to be well done, and that isn't easy at all. The story of the Sphere Project is, as Mustafa Osman from Islamic Relief puts it, the story of one of the most successful humanitarian initiatives of the last decade. It's the story of key actors in the humanitarian sector getting together to make sure that the lofty ideals that drive their work are translated into common principles, minimum standards, actions, indicators. In other words, concrete, measurable benchmarks that help them achieve greater quality and accountability in their work while performing their tasks professionally. This story begins in the 90s. Back then, many changes were taking place in the humanitarian sector including the fact that some new players, like the military and development agencies, were entering the field. In 1994, an estimated 800,000 people were killed in the Rwandan genocide. Following this tragedy, a multi-donor evaluation concluded that if humanitarian agencies had done a better job, more lives would have been saved. The Rwandan tragedy was a catalyst, and in 1997, a group of humanitarian, non-governmental organizations and the Red Cross Red Crescent movement set up what came to be known as the Sphere Project, a unique voluntary initiative aimed at improving the quality and accountability of humanitarian response. By 1998, a trial edition of the Sphere Handbook was ready. At its core was the Humanitarian Charter, a summary of common values and principles guiding humanitarian work. In addition to the Charter, a series of universal minimum standards for life-saving areas of humanitarian response were established. The first published edition of the Sphere Handbook saw the light in the year 2000. It quickly became a success and was translated into 29 languages. The second edition of the Handbook came out in 2004. It met the same wide acceptance as its predecessor. Thirteen new language versions were added. By the end of the first decade of the 21st century, new developments in the humanitarian sector made it necessary to again revise the Sphere Handbook. Over two and a half years, 
More than 650 experts from some 300 humanitarian organizations, including all the relevant United Nations agencies, were involved in this revision. The result of this wide consultative process, which has in itself been an achievement in terms of collaboration within the humanitarian sector, is the Sphere Handbook 2011 edition. The third edition of the Sphere Handbook has some significant changes. Its core is still the Humanitarian Charter, which has been completely rewritten, incorporating clearer language and stronger linkages with the minimum standards. The Charter affirms that humanitarian response is based on the principle of humanity and the humanitarian imperative. It spells out three fundamental rights of people affected by disaster and conflict. The right to life with dignity, the right to receive humanitarian assistance, the right to protection and security. A new chapter on protection principles reflects the results of a decade-long debate within the sector. It's grounded on the conviction that protection is intrinsic to all humanitarian response and that all humanitarian actors must be concerned with the protection and safety of populations affected by disaster and conflict. There are four protection principles. First, avoid exposing people to further harm as a result of your actions. Second, ensure people's access to impartial assistance in proportion to need and without discrimination. Third, protect people from physical and psychological harm arising from violence and coercion. Fourth, assist people to claim their rights, access available remedies, and recover from the effects of abuse. Core standards are a practical expression of the principles described in the Humanitarian Charter and the entry point to the technical minimum standards. They refer to processes that need to be put in place and to the people involved. Core standards focus on community-centered response and give visibility to coordination as well as performance and learning. Taken together, the Humanitarian Charter, the Protection Principles, and the Core Standards constitute the backbone of the Sphere Handbook. By stating that humanitarian response is that which is concerned with the basic rights of people affected by disaster and conflict, these three tools affirm humanitarian principles as paramount. It's this focus on rights that distinguishes true humanitarian action from service delivery and identifies humanitarian organizations as the key actors in humanitarian response. The minimum standards are a compilation of best practices in the sector and a practical expression of the principles stated in the Humanitarian Charter. They do not stand alone. They need to be read together with the core standards. The minimum standards cover four areas of humanitarian response, which are critical determinants for survival in the initial stages of a disaster. They are water supply, sanitation and hygiene promotion, food security and nutrition, shelter, settlement and non-food items, and health action. These four technical chapters have been restructured in the revised edition of the handbook. They include minimum qualitative standards, key suggested actions to help meet those minimum standards, key indicators that make it possible to measure whether a standard has been attained, and guidance notes addressing practical difficulties, priority issues, and dilemmas. While the SPHERE standards are meant to be universal, the handbook helps humanitarian actors to recognize different contexts and adapt response programs to them. It offers guidance on how to attain universally applicable standards in concrete situations. 
When the circumstances make standards impossible to meet, they are still useful as guidance. Furthermore, by explaining why they've not been met, they serve as accountability benchmarks. In addition to the rewrite of the Humanitarian Charter, the new chapter on protection and the restructured technical chapters on minimum standards, the handbook has some other new features. It takes education in emergencies as well as humanitarian reform into account. It considers emerging issues like civil-military relations, cash transfers, and early recovery of services and livelihoods. A series of cross-cutting themes address vulnerability factors such as gender, children, and HIV and AIDS, among others. As Peter Walker, the director of the Feinstein International Center at Tufts University says, what keeps the Spear Handbook relevant is its insistence on being evidence-based and thus open to being updated as new evidence of needs and best practice come to light. The Spear Project story started a decade and a half ago. Today, with its rights-based, people-centered approach, the Sphere Project and its handbook help equip humanitarian actors to continuously strive for quality and accountability in their work. The project has become a force for cooperation and coordination within the humanitarian sector. Being a state-of-the-art summary of best practices, the handbook enables a truly professional approach to humanitarian response. Valerie Amos is the UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and its Emergency Relief Coordinator. She says, The SPHERE standards are the benchmark for ensuring humane and fair humanitarian assistance to people in need around the world. I hope that all organizations that provide humanitarian aid will become familiar with the standards and use them. This will improve the quality of humanitarian assistance to survivors of disasters and conflicts. The Sphere Handbook 2011 edition has been published in English, Arabic, Spanish, French, Russian, and German, as well as several other languages. The translation and dissemination of the handbook is part of a rollout strategy that includes updating training materials, developing new learning tools, and... Okay. I'm going to cut this short just for time's sake and that we have time to interact a little bit as we, as we move forward. Can I get somebody to grab at least a set of lights on one side? Let's see if I can get our PowerPoint back in functional. All right. Uh, probably, maybe, is that, maybe, yeah, perfect. One side probably will allow us to see that pretty well. So the Sphere Handbook, of, I'm going to share a little bit why this is, you know, relevant for Christian ministries as well. But understand the context of you know, the foundation being the humanitarian charter, the protection principles, and the core standards. But that's upon which we build those four technical sectors of water supply, sanitation, hygiene and promotion, food security and nutrition, shelter, settle, uh, shelter settlement, and non-food items, and then health action. Most of the people here are concerned with health action, or that's probably the majority of people at this conference are, are in the health realm. But the core standards of and the core standards and the minimum standards are really undergirded by this idea of the humanitarian charter, the protection principles, and the code of conduct, which we're going to touch on in uh, shortly, a little bit later. The idea of cross-cutting themes means that there are certain population groups within uh, humanitarian response of any kind of that uh, that need special attention. Those could be 
of you know children, the elderly, the disabled, all of those of uh, those population groups will need specific attention, and they have various uh, issues across all of those technical sectors. Now, why do you need to study this? Why can't you just buy the book and and do these standards? Well, the challenge is is that you can see that of uh, if you look at this, each each technical standard has key actions and key indicators and then guidance notes driven by them without a little practice in those. Now, there is an e-course that's free and it's available online, and you can go and do that. And we recommend that it's probably part of what you, what you should do if you're interested in gaining these technical standards and really understanding this material. Going through that e-course uh, on the Sphere website is really very helpful. But until you actually get to do tabletop exercise some of this material and really think it through and work on applying these standards, it's really hard to get this into an implementation phase. So when we look at the difference between the idea of, of you know, the minimum standards and the indicators, the minimum standards are kind of general of, of kind of uh, general statements that we don't want to we, we don't want to change, such as you know of you know all people have of all people must have uh, access to safe equitable or safe equitable access to sufficient quantity of water for drinking, cooking, and personal uh, domestic hygiene. So when we translate that, the average water uh, for drinking, cooking in personal hygiene in a household is 15 liters per person per day. Now, we may contextualize that based on whether they're close to of a body of water or, or a river and, and how, uh, you know, how much water has to be trucked in, how much water can be, you know, how much personal hygiene can be taken outside of the home. All of those sorts of things are contextualized in the circumstances. So those indicators may vary depending upon the application that you're using them in. You know, the most important takeaway from, from all of this and why it applies, I think, fundamentally to all mission work is, is the idea, this, the humanitarian charter is built on these three ideas, the, the right to receive humanitarian assistance and give humanitarian assistance. So anytime we're responding as a Christian community to human suffering of any kind, uh, this applies to us. We have the right to provide that, we, have, we also have an obligation to try to hold local governments accountable to allow us to do so. The right to uh, protection and security, I'm going to touch more on that, but that's something that people should be safe, especially even in combat zones and cha in challenging areas. That's something that we need to be concerned with. The other thing is a mission community. We have to be concerned about the unintended consequences of our purposeful actions or our good intentions. You know, when we go into a community and we drop $60,000 worth of pharmaceuticals in Ziploc baggies uh, to, to moms in one-room dirt floor shacks who have nowhere to store them away from their children, we have to ask, have we fulfilled that? You know, uh, so there are some patient safety concerns from a, from a health care perspective that we have to be concerned with and that apply directly to this idea that our first and foremost, we are not to be causing any harm and that we're to protect the population, even from our good intentions, that we need to pay attention to these areas. But most importantly and central to the humanitarian charter is this idea of the right to life with dignity. And that needs to be central to our mission work as a whole. What does that look like? 
you know, from uh, from a cartoon perspective, it looks like this. You know, I don't know if you can all see that, but the the guy says, "Come on, it's it's better than nothing, isn't it?" And uh, and, and it's the earthquake zone, and and I think sometimes that happens in our in our humanitarian response or our, our Christian mission response in, in various circumstances, and even in our short-term medical missions, of that one of probably one of the biggest barriers to patient safety in, in global health is the idea that something is better than nothing. And when we talk about something is better than nothing, that may be the case in certain circumstances, but when the something that we're talking about has significant potential to harm the population, we need to really be cognizant of that. And that's probably not a, a, an assumption that would support patient safety, and it would certainly not support human dignity. No one really clearly understands the effect of, on the human spirit and self-worth of a person forced to re- receive charity. You know, what we do know is that helping people is about encouragement, edification, facilitating the uh, self, you know, facilitating the achievement of self-sufficiency. And, and if really, if we don't think about this well, our efforts can make people feel uh, incapable of meeting their own needs. And that's probably the, you know, probably the biggest concern, especially with short-term mission effort, and, and especially whether that's in the disaster conflict or con- context or, or not. Uh, one of the things I will say is that we have to, as a community, get this idea out of our mind of we want to do needs assessments. Who's ever heard that term? We, we do needs assessments, right? That should be removed from your vocabulary from this day forward. <laughs> we do asset assessments. We do capacity assessments. The, the idea that if I make a list of all the things that you need, that becomes a pretty disempowering list, doesn't it? But if I make a list of all the capacities that you have and all the God-given abilities and capabilities that you have as a person, as a community, that becomes a very empowering list, doesn't it? And that's the context of what we're talking about in supporting human dignity. And that's foundational. That's, that's the gospel. People are created in the image of God with an innate uh, worth and value and, and, and capabilities and capacities and, and we need to see them in that light and in that context. Of Everybody realizes the difference, I'm sure, here between relief uh, versus development, correct? As a review for those of you who don't, relief is meant to be a short-term charity, uh, uh, short-term charity in emergency situations, whereas development is about improving self-sufficiency and building capacity. Now, the idea, though, is that we have to understand that both relief and development are founded on building on existing resources and capacity. And, and, and that's the starting place for both. But it's also the starting place for mission work. That, that's gospel truth, what we're looking at there. You know, people are made in the image of God with God-given capacities, and they are not victims of circumstance. Even though they may have just encountered an earthquake, and temporarily they are victims of circumstance. But when we go into a community, we have to see past the poverty. We have to understand that people have the capacity 
to lift themselves out of poverty, to respond to their own needs, and we can't be in a place where we're doing what they doing for them what they can do for themselves. We're there to serve and support them in their efforts to care for their community. So, of uh, the right to humanitarian assistance, this is you know uh, the main thing is is that people have adequate you know, an adequate standard of living, adequate food and water in time and shelter in time of of emergency crisis situations. One of the big challenges in applying and and sorting through the technical standards of SPHERE is that you, uh, a lot of the populations we deal with don't meet these standards to start. So before the disaster, they haven't met these standards. So as we begin to work through the various contexts, uh, it, it takes some time to really think through what these standards and how these indicators may be modified depending upon the population and where you're working and how you're working. Uh, the right to protection and security. You have to understand these rights are founded in international law. And, uh, and, and there's a right uh, that's, that basically the distinct... Uh, to distinguish between civilians and combatants that, that people uh, are not, should not ever be labeled combatants if they are not. The principle of portionality is another one that draws, uh, that, that some of these rights are drawn from. And the idea, that's kind of the idea that uh, uh, if, a, uh, if, if a party commits a lawful bombing of a, uh, of a population, of a military target, and non-military personnel were killed in collateral damage, they draw out how to assess whether that was a war crime or not by this idea of pro- uh, proportionality. And that is, uh, that's something that uh, is, is one of the basis for, for this, uh, for these laws uh, or for these principles. And I'm giving you a very, very quick overview of something that takes a week to teach, but I wanted to give you enough information that you could at least process some of the idea and be familiar with these standards are out there and how do we implement them and how do we get engaged with them. Uh, This is just kind of the human dignity, goes back to the human dignity aspect of what we're doing. One of the things that we have to get past is I think sometimes innately, and we don't do it purposefully, but we do programs to people, or we do missions to people instead of with people. And, and until we get to the point where we, our primary role in short-term missions really should be building relationships and, and just, just being uh, friends and partners and, and brothers and sisters in Christ and almost an interdependence, not, of, not where we are building dependence in the community. But I think this goes to to what to that ideal that that we really need to get to a point where we aren't trying to do for people what they can do for themselves, and we're not trying to create projects for God. Uh, God's got enough projects going on. I think the idea is that we find what He's already doing, and then we join that. Uh, so we talked about. I'm, I'm going to skip through some of this because I want to get to. Uh, these are kind of the four things that are expected of agencies that respond. And uh, they're, you know, uh, essentially, uh, 
if we can keep these things in mind, we're going to do a much better job as a Christian community as well as the secular community out there. One of the things that is my heart is that, I don't know if you know it, but a lot of the standards that we look at in the World Health Organization that have been derived of, that we really are trying to promote now, were actually established by the Christian Medical Commission many years ago. Of The Alma-Ata was a, a, a conference in back in 1978 or 79, uh, that was the, the idea for health for all by 2000. And, and all of the principles, the driving force behind that was Christian missionaries. A lot of the standards that we see implemented by the World Health Organization right now were, were driven and established by Christian missionary physicians. And now somehow we've been removed from the table. Uh, we're not at that table anymore. And that's a shame because we have an awful lot to offer this community. Uh, we, uh, we provide 70, probably 70% of the effective health care in Africa, probably at least 40% for sure, about 40, 45% of all the health care that's provided in Africa, functional health care, and probably 70% of the really good health care. Uh, we, 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 deserve, we deserve a seat at this table, but the only way we're going to get a seat at this table to affect UN policy, World Health Organization policy, is if we play by their rules too. And, and there's nothing in their rules that violates our Christian faith. Uh, it's a matter of, of holding ourselves accountable to, pro, to being excellent in what we do. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, so the idea is that it's a people-centered approach, that we minimize the adverse effects on the population that we're serving meaning that there's every action, every good intention is always going to have unintended consequences. I can give you a whole list of them. In fact, I've got a book written on it of, called When Healthcare Hurts. It's kind of laying around here somewhere. Of the, of the idea of that is that even in humanitarian context, we need to pay attention to that. Of Act in accordance with the code of conduct. Of And I'm going to show you what that is here in a minute. And then, uh, you know, we want to be accountable. We want to commit to consistently attempt to achieve the standards and be prepared to be held accountable for them. We need to help, help each other be accountable to these in, uh, in the Christian community as well. All right, I'm going to quickly show you this last video, and then we're going to do a quick exercise uh, just so you guys can get an idea of what it looks like to find things and look through this book. Hopefully this one will play better than the last one. So say a prayer. The Code of Conduct for the International Red Cross... Can I get somebody to get the video through the light over there? ...and NGOs in disaster relief was developed in 1994 as a tool to set standards of behavior for humanitarian organizations. Since then, climate change, population growth, urbanization, and other factors have greatly increased the numbers of vulnerable people around the world... The need for humanitarian action is growing, and it's becoming more complex, challenging, and dangerous. The code is still relevant in today's world. Most likely, the code of conduct has already been signed by your organization. Over 400 have done so. The code speaks to us, humanitarians, and includes our common values and practical lessons from years of experience. As humanitarians, we are expected to live up to the code. Mm-hmm. 
first principle means that all people affected by disaster or armed conflict have a right to receive assistance and protection. This is the overarching principle. The next three principles in the Code of Conduct remind humanitarians about their motivation as being the alleviation and prevention of human suffering. Principle 2 says that aid must be impartial or based only on need. Principle 3 says that aid will not be used to further any particular political or religious standpoint. Principle 4 is about retaining independence from political and public authorities. This ensures humanitarian agencies can respond according to their impartial assessment of need. in their context. All people and communities, even in times of disaster, possess capacities as well as vulnerabilities. Where possible, we need to help people become more resilient. highlights the importance of being accountable to those we seek to assist, not only to those who provide resources. We as aid providers often find ourselves in positions of power. Accountability is about using our power with integrity. Principle 10 is about portraying disaster-affected people as dignified human beings. In the way we portray affected people, we demonstrate what we think of them. Public information can perpetuate stereotypes and can reinforce the idea of disaster-affected people as passive recipients of aid. Humanitarian concerns are greater than any single organization can address. Humanitarian action involves a complex interplay of communities, organizations, governments, and institutions. The code includes three annexes that describe the working environment for humanitarian organizations. there. Can somebody get the lights for me? Just one side. Either one is fine. Uh, a couple things I'll bring to your attention. Uh, one of which uh, I know it, it sometimes if you, 
if you don't if you don't really hear what they said about the idea of furthering political or religious agenda, what they mean is that doesn't mean you can't witness. It doesn't mean we can't witness. What it means is that I'm not going to withhold aid of force in case somebody sees my worldview or the way, uh, unless they convert to Christianity or they become a Christian, then my aid is conditional upon that. That's what that means. It does not mean that you cannot, wis- that you cannot witness. Uh, the, uh, the other thing that I, I just want to point out is the last one is, is kind of important, that we portray people in both disaster uh, situations and even in our mission work as dignified human beings. And we don't paint them in our literature, uh, from speaking to the organizations now, as, uh, as victims of circumstance. And we need to get past seeing people like that, and we need to get past portraying people like that uh, in our literature and how we, uh, we relate our work to the outside world. A couple quick things. A couple websites that you should know about. Humanitarianresponse.org, I think it is. Uh, the... Uh, this is actually the UN coordination site for every disaster uh, and refugee uh, project that is going on around the world internationally. If you're directing an organization that, uh, that engages in work at this level, certainly a site you need to be aware of. of, the, of the opportunity to plug in with various sectors is here. Uh, they'll give you all the key contacts for various sectors of whether that be health sector, WASH, of, in, in whatever area that you're specializing in, who the key players are in that area on the ground at that point. All of that information is publicly available, and they want you to have it because they want you to be part of the bigger picture and not be out there working on your own. The other one is humanitarian ID. This is, uh, this is a system once you log on and you have an ID, you can log in and out of disaster areas. Once you're there, your contact would be given. If you check in, uh, if you land in Haiti, well, let's not use that example. I don't like that one. If you land in Pakistan uh, <laughs> of after a flood, after the flood in 2011, you hit, I'm here. Basically, you check in, and uh, your sector, that sector chief will probably find you because they're looking for volunteers and they're looking to plug people in. Not that I would ever advocate that somebody just land in the middle of a disaster zone by themselves. That would be pretty irresponsible. There is a lot of organizations that do great work in the disaster response area. Samaritan's Purse is one I recommend highly because they, they are able to engage uh, quickly and mobilize, uh, mobilize and respond very, very quickly. Uh, there is uh, that book I mentioned. It's called When Healthcare Hurts. Uh, we do one-day and half-day workshops on this uh, and kind of looking at what does it look like. Ah, there is one. There you go. I've got a few copies down at our booth. Uh, but if you're doing short-term medical trips, like especially team-type trips, I, uh, you know, come by and grab a book. Uh, I've, got, I've got a couple dozen down there, I think. Uh, I'd love to chat with you about maybe how to, how to improve what you're doing and give you some ideas and, and maybe learn from you as well. Uh, but we do some other trainings. Uh, Laura, uh, I'm going to have uh, come up and, and go through a scenario with you guys. Uh, do you mind? Okay. 
of, and you'll see around the room I've got uh, some of, of, what do you call it, poster boards. So I want every place you see a poster board, there's two over on that side, there's one here, and I think there's two on this side of the room. I want you guys to kind of gather around those. And uh, Laura's going to give you, an, uh, before you gather around there, Laura's going to give you a little exercise to, uh, to go from. I think I'm just going to hold this one. Okay, so we covered a whole lot <laughs> in a little bit of time. Um, but this exercise is kind of to make it practical and implement for us. Um, and it ta- what it's going to do is take the core standards, which are based on the principles and the humanitarian charter and the code of conduct. Those are all narrowed down into core standards that help us put the principles into practice. Those core standards we incorporate when we're working in any sector. So we're going, we have handouts with examples of the health sector, a few of the standards in the health sector, and we're going to have you go through the scenario and you're going to choose one standard in the health sector, one key action, and one key indicator. And then one core standard, one key action and key indicator that goes with that core standard, and your group will explain which ones you chose and how you're going to implement them. You will probably have one minute to explain it, so we don't want lengthy explanations. We just want the work to go through and look at the standards and the indicators and how the sectoral work interacts with the um, core standards, which are based on the principles behind them. Make sense? I might have enough for everybody, but I don't think I do. So I'm going to ask you guys to share in, uh, like, one for every two or three people, and that way we'll have enough to get to share one. So the handouts, the health services are first, um, and then behind those are the core standards, and in the back you have a cheat sheet that has – This is the health action cheat sheet, so it has all the health action standards on it. And you can see we only gave you really the communicable disease and child health ones. There's actually about seven different levels of them. Um, And then the core standards are on that sheet. And the last sheet has the SPEAR website. Um, So your your scenario is... Torrential monsoon rains have caused unprecedented flooding, displacing over one million people in a tropical region. Your organization, which specializes in global health, because we're at the Global Missions Health Conference, has joined the response effort and been asked by the health cluster, which is that United Nations um, websites that we were just looking at, um, asked by the health cluster to address the health needs in an internally displaced persons camp, so a refugee camp of 100,000 people. Um, so with that scenario, each group picks one standard, an action, and an indicator to meet that standard in both the health section and the core standards. Questions? Okay. You can separate into your groups, and we'll circulate around. Okay. Let's all come back to our seats, and each group needs a spokesperson. Um, If you would like to keep your hand out, that's fine. If you don't have any use for it, and it is available online, this is actually printed from the online sphere book. Um, We have another workshop, so you can turn it in at the end. (laughs) While you're coming back to your seat. And just so, uh, if anybody wants to look at the actual sphere book, what this looks like, uh, if you're up here, you can kind of flip through. There's a few copies. You can't give them out, but you're welcome to take a look at them and play them a little bit.
but they are available free online in the PDF format. So apologies for the quick um, introduction and instructions, uh, but you all got started well, and it looks like you all did pretty good. So a volunteer for our first group to present, and I do think you should probably come to the microphone, but I won't make you use both microphones. <laughs> so how about this corner group? I'm volunteering you. Who's your spokesperson? Who's the scribe? Come on, we don't bite. I don't think anybody else in here does any. Yeah. And what's neat is no one has no one has repeated anything yet. Uh, 